This sermon was created with an artificial voice for the audiobook initiative on Sermon Audio. There may be mispronunciations or occasional repetitions. To report a mistake, please email us at info at sermonaudio.com and include the sermon ID or title of the message and the time at which the error occurs. We will do our best to get it corrected for future listeners. The Greatness of the Soul, Part 2, by John Bunyan, but to go forward, of sight. One can the body see, hath it eyes? So hath the soul, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, as then the body can see beasts, trees, men, and all visible things, so the soul can see God, Christ, angels, heaven, devils, hell, and other things that are invisible. Nor is this property only peculiar to the souls that are illuminate by the Holy Ghost. For the most carnal soul in the world shall have a time to see these things, but not to its comfort, but not to its joy, but to its endless woe and misery, it dying in that condition. Wherefore, sinner, say not thou, I shall not see him, for judgment is before him, and he will make thee see him. Of hearing. 2. Can the body hear? Hath it ears? So hath the soul. It is the soul, not the body, that hears the language of things invisible. It is the soul that hears God when he speaks in and by his word and spirit. And it is the soul that hears the devil when he speaks by his illusions and temptations and temptations. True, there is such an union between the soul and the body that oft times, if not always, that which is heard by the ears of the body doth influence the soul, and that which is heard by the soul doth also influence the body. But yet, as to the organ of hearing, the body hath one of its own distinct from that of the soul. And the soul can hear and regard even then, when the body doth nor cannot. As in time of sleep, deep sleep and trances, when the body lieth by as a thing that is useless. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man as to his body perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men and slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, etc. This must be meant of the ears of the soul, not of the body. For that at this time is said to be in deep sleep. Moreover, this hearing, it is a hearing of dreams and the visions of the night. Jeremiah also tells us that he had the rare and blessed visions of God in his sleep. And so doth Daniel too, by the which they were greatly comforted and refreshed. But that could not be, was not the soul also capable of hearing. I heard the voice of his words, said Daniel, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground, of tasting. 3. As the soul can see and hear, so it can taste and relish, even as really as doth the palate belonging to the body. But then the thing so tasted must be that which is suited to the temper and palate of the soul. 
The soul's taste lieth not in, nor is exercised about meats, the meats that are for the belly. Yet the soul of a saint can taste and relish God's word, and doth oft-times find it sweeter than honey nourishing as milk, and strengthening like to strong meat. The soul also of sinners, and of those that are unsanctified, can taste and relish, though not the things now mentioned, yet things that agree with their fleshly minds, and with their polluted, and defiled, and vile affections, they can relish and taste that which delighteth them. Yea, they can find sole delight in an alehouse, a whorehouse, a playhouse. Aye, they find pleasure in the vilest things, in the things most offensive to God, and that are most destructive to themselves. This is evident to sense, and is proved by the daily practice of sinners. Nor is the word barren as to this. They feed on ashes. They feed on ashes. They spend their money for that which is not bread. Yea, they eat and suck sweetness out of sin. They eat up the sin of my people, as they eat bread, of smelling. For, as the soul can see, hear, and taste, so it can smell, and brings refreshment to itself that way. Hence the church saith, My fingers dropped with sweet-smelling myrrh. And again she saith of her beloved, That his lips dropped sweet-smelling more. But how came the church to understand this? But because her soul did smell that in it that was to be smelled in it, even in his word and gracious visits? The poor world indeed cannot smell or savor anything of the good and fragrant scent and sweet that is in Christ, that is in Christ. But to them that believe, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee, thee, of feeling. 5. As the soul can see, taste, hear, and smell, so it hath the sense of feeling, as quick and as sensible as the body. He knows nothing that knows not this. He whose soul is past feeling has his conscience seared with a hot iron. Nothing so sensible as the soul, nor feeleth so quickly the love and mercy or the anger and wrath of God. Asked the awakened man, or the man that is under the convictions of the law, if he doth not feel, and he will quickly tell you, that he faints and dies away by reason of God's hand and his wrath that lieth upon him. Read the first eight verses of the 38th Psalm. If thou knowest nothing of what I have told thee by experience, and there thou shalt hear the complaints of one whose soul lay at present under the burden of guilt, and that cried out that without help from heaven he could by no means bear the same, they also that know what the peace of God means, and what an eternal weight there is in glory know well, that the soul has the sense of feeling, as well as the senses of seeing, hearing, tasting, hearing, tasting, and smelling. But thus much for the senses of the soul, of the passions of the soul. Third, I come, in the next place, to describe the soul by the passions of the soul. The passions of the soul, I reckon, are these, and such like, to wit, love, hatred, joy, fear, grief, anger, etc. And these passions of the soul are not therefore good, 
nor therefore evil, because they are the passions of the soul, but are made so by two things, to wit, principle and object. The principle I count that from whence they flow, and the object that upon which they are pitched, to explain myself, of love, one, for that of love, this is a strong passion. The Holy Ghost saith, it is strong as death and cruel as the grave, and it is then good when it flows from faith and pitcheth itself upon God in Christ as the object, and when it extendeth itself to all that is good, whether it be the good word, the good work of grace, or the good men that have it, and also to their good lives. But all soul love floweth not from this principle, neither hath these for its object. How many are there that make the object of their love the most vile of men, the most base of things, because it flows from vile affections and from the lusts of the flesh? God and Christ, good laws and good men, and their holy lives, they cannot abide because their love wanteth a principle that should sanctify it in its first motion, and that should steer it to a goodly object, but that is the first of hatred. 2. There is hatred, which I count another passion of the soul, and this, as the other, is good or evil, as the principle from whence it flows and the object of it are. Ye that love the Lord hate evil, then therefore is this passion good, when it singleth out from the many thousand of things that are in the world that one filthy thing called sin, and when it setteth itself, the soul and the whole man, against it, and engageth all the powers of the soul to seek and invent its ruin. But, alas, where shall this hatred be found? What man is there whose soul is filled with this passion, thus sanctified by the love of God, and that makes sin, which is God's enemy, the only object of its indignation? How many be there, I say, whose hatred is turned another way because of the malignity of their minds? They hate knowledge, they hate God, they hate the righteous. And all is because the grace of filial fear is not the root and principle from whence their hatred flows. For the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Wherefore, wherefore, where this grace is wanting for a root in the soul, there it must of necessity swerve in the letting out of this passion. Because the soul where grace in wanting is not at liberty to act simply, but is biased by the power of sin. That, while grace is absent, is present in the soul. And hence it is that this passion, which, when acted well, is a virtue, is so abused, is so abused, and made to exercise its force against that for which God never ordained it, nor gave it license to act. Of joy, three, Another passion of the soul is joy, and when the soul rejoiceth virtuously, it rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. This joy is a very strong passion, and will carry a man through a world of difficulties. It is a passion that beareth up, that supporteth and strengtheneth a man, let the object of his joy be what it will. It is this that maketh the soul fat in goodness if it have its object accordingly, and that which makes the soul bold in wickedness, 
if it indeed doth rejoice in iniquity, of fear, for another passion of the soul is fear, natural fear, for so you must understand me of all the passions of the soul, as they are considered simply and in their own nature, and as it is with the other passions, so it is with this, it is made good or evil in its acts, as its principle and objects are. When this passion of the soul is good, then it springs from sense of the greatness and goodness and majesty of God. Also God himself is the object of this fear. I will forewarn you, says Christ, whom ye shall fear. Fear him that can destroy both body and soul in hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. But in all men this passion is not regulated and governed by these principles and objects, but is abused and turned, through the policy of Satan, quite into another channel. It is made to fear men, to fear idols, to fear devils and witches. Yea, it is made to fear all the foolish, ridiculous, and apish fables that every old woman or atheistical fortune-teller has the face to drop before the soul. But fear is another passion of the soul. Of grief, five. Another passion of the soul is grief, and it, as those aforenamed, acteth even according as it is governed. When holiness is lovely and beautiful to the soul, and when the name of Christ is more precious than life, then will the soul sit down and be afflicted, because men keep not God's law. I beheld the transgressors, and was grieved, because they kept not thy word. So Christ, he looked round about with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. But it is rarely seen that this passion of the soul is thus exercised. Almost everybody has other things for the spending of the heat of this passion upon. Men are grieved that they thrive no more in the world, grieved that they have no more carnal, sensual, and worldly honor, grieved that they are suffered no more to range in the lusts and vanities of this life. But all this is because the soul is unacquainted with God, sees no beauty in holiness, but is sensual, and wrapped up in clouds and thick darkness. Of anger. Six. And lastly, there is anger, which is another passion of the soul. And that, as the rest, is extended by the soul, according to the nature of the principle by which it is acted, and from whence it flows. And in a word, to speak nothing of the fierceness and power of this passion, it is then cursed when it breaketh out beyond the bounds that God hath set it, the which to be sure it doth, when it shall by its fierceness or irregular motion run the soul into sin. Be ye angry, and sin not, is the limitation wherewith God hath bounded this passion. And whatever is more than this is a giving place to the devil, and one reason, among others, why the Lord doth so strictly set this bound, and these limits to anger is, for that it is so furious a passion, and for that it will so quickly swell up the soul with sin, as they say a toad swells with its poison. Yea, it will in a moment so transport the spirit of a man that he shall quickly forget himself, his God, his friend, and all good rule.
but my business is not now to make a comment upon the passions of the soul, only to show you that there are such, and also which they are. And now, from this description of the soul, what follows but to put you in mind what a noble, powerful, lively, sensible thing the soul is, that by the text is supposed may be lost, through the heedlessness, or carelessness, or slavish fear of him whose soul it is, and also to stir you up to that care of, and labor after, the salvation of your soul, as becomes the weight of the matter. If the soul were a trivial thing, or if a man, though he lost it, might yet himself be happy, it were another matter. But the loss of the soul is no small loss, nor can that man that has lost his soul, had he all the world, yea, the whole kingdom of heaven, the whole kingdom of heaven, in his own power, be but in a most fearful and miserable condition, but of these things more in their place. The greatness of the soul, Second, having thus given you a description of the soul, what it is I shall in the next place show you the greatness of it. Of the greatness of the soul, when compared with the body, first, and the first thing that I shall take occasion to make this manifest by, will be by showing you the disproportion that is betwixt that and the body. And I shall do it in these following particulars, the body a house for the soul, 1. The body is called the house of the soul, a house for the soul to dwell in. Now everybody knows that the house is much inferior to him, that, by God's ordinance, is appointed to dwell therein. That it is called the house of the soul, you find in Paul to the Corinthians. For we know, saith he, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We have then a house for our soul in this world, and this house is the body, for the apostle can mean nothing else. Therefore he calls it an earthly house, if our earthly house, our house. But who doth he personate if he says, This is a house for the soul, for the body is part of him that says, Our house? In this manner of language, he personates his soul with the souls of the rest that are saved. And thus to do is common with the apostles, as will be easily discerned by them that give attendance to reading. Our earthly houses, or, as Job saith, houses of clay, for our bodies are bodies of clay. Your remembrances are like unto ashes, your bodies to bodies of clay. Indeed, he after maketh mention of a house in heaven, but that is not it about which he now speaks. Now he speaks of this earthly house which we have, we, our souls, to dwell in, while on this side glory, where the other house stands, as ready prepared for us when we shall flit from this to that, or in case this should sooner or later be dissolved. But that is the first the body is compared to the house, but the soul to him that inhabiteth the house. Therefore, as the man is more noble than the house he dwells in, so is the soul more noble than the body. And yet, alas, with grief be it spoken, how common is it for men to spend all their care, 
all their time, all their strength, all their wit and parts for the body and its honor and preferment, at preferment, even as if the soul were some poor, pitiful, sorry, inconsiderable, an underthing not worth the thinking of, or not worth the caring for, thought, but the body clothing for the soul, too. The body is called the clothing, and the soul that which is clothed therewith. Now everybody knows that the body is more than raiment, even carnal sense will teach us this. But read that pregnant place, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened, that is, with mortal flesh, with mortal flesh. Not for that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Thus the greatness of the soul appears in the preference that it hath to the body. The body is its raiment. We see that, above all creatures, man, because he is the most noble among all visible ones, has for the adorning of his body that more abundant comeliness. Tis the body of man, not of beast, that is clothed with the richest ornaments. But now what a thing is the soul, that the body itself must be its clothing. No suit of apparel is by God thought good enough for the soul, but that which is made by God himself, and that is that curious thing, the body. But oh, how little is this considered, namely, the greatness of the soul. Tis the body, the clothes, the suit of apparel that our foolish fancies are taken with. Not at all considering the richness and excellency of that great and more noble part, the soul for which the body is made a mantle to wrap it up in, a garment to clothe it with all. If a man gets a rent in his clothes, it is little in comparison of a rent in his flesh. Yea, he comforts himself when he looks on that rent, saying, Thanks be to God, it is not a rent in my flesh. But, ah, on the contrary, how many are there in the world that are more troubled for that they have a rent, a wound, or a disease in the body, than for that they have for the souls that will be lost and cast away. A little rent in the body dejecteth and casteth such down but they are not at all concerned, though their soul is now, and will yet further be torn in pieces. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest he tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. But this is the second thing, whereby or by which the greatness of the soul appears, to wit, in that the body, that excellent piece of God's workmanship, is but a garment or clothing for the soul, the body a vessel for the soul. 3. The body is called a vessel, or a case for the soul to be put and kept in. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. The apostle here doth exhort the people to abstain from fornication, which, in another place, he saith, is a sin against the body. And here again he saith, This is the will of God, that ye should abstain from fornication, that the body be not defiled, that the body be not defiled, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, his vessel, his earthen vessel, as he calls it in another place. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels, 
Thus, then the body is called a vessel. Yea, every man's body is his vessel. But what has God prepared this vessel for, and what has he put into it? Why many things this body is to be a vessel for, but at present God has put into it that curious thing, the soul. Cabinets that are very rich and costly things of themselves are not made nor designed to be vessels to be stuffed or filled with trumpery and things of no value. No, these are prepared for rings and jewels, for pearls, for rubies, and things that are choice. And if so, what shall we then think of the soul for which is prepared, and that of God, the most rich and excellent vessel in the world? Surely it must be a thing of worth, yea, of more worth than is the whole world besides. But alas, who believes this talk? Do not even the most of men so set their minds upon, and so admire the glory of this case or vessel, that they forget once with seriousness to think, and therefore must of necessity be a great way off, of those suitable esteems that becomes them to have of their souls. But, oh, since this vessel, this cabinet, this body is so curiously made, and that to receive and contain, what thing is that for which God has made this vessel? And what is that soul that he hath put into it? Wherefore thus, in the third place, is the greatness of the soul made manifest, even by the excellency of the vessel, the body, that God has made to put it in, the body a tabernacle of the soul. For the body is called a tabernacle for the soul. Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, that is, my body, by death. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, etc. In both these places, by tabernacle, can be meant nothing but the body. Wherefore, both the apostles in these sentences do personate their souls and speak as if the soul was the all of a man. Yea, they plainly tell us that the body is but the house, clothes, vessel, and tabernacle for the soul. But what a famous thing, therefore, is the soul. The tabernacle of old was a place erected for worship, but the worshippers were more excellent than the place. Then the place... So our body is a tabernacle for the soul to worship God in, but must needs be accounted much inferior to the soul, forasmuch as the worshippers are always of more honor than the place they worship in. As he that dwelleth in the tabernacle hath more honor than the tabernacle. I serve, says Paul, God and Christ Jesus, with my spirit or soul in the gospel, but not with his spirit out of, but in this tabernacle. The tabernacle had instruments of worship for the worshipers, so has the body for the soul, and we are bid to yield our members as instruments of righteousness to God. The hands, feet, ears, eyes, and tongue, which last is our glory when used right, are all of them instruments of this tabernacle, and to be made use of by the soul, the inhabitor of this tabernacle, for the soul's performance of the service of God. I thus discourse, to show you the greatness of the soul. And in mine opinion there is something, if not very much, in what I say. For all men admire the body, both for its manner of building 
and the curious way of its being compacted together. Yes, the further men, wise men, do pry into the wonderful work of God that is put forth in framing the body, the more still they are made to admire. And yet, as I said, this body is but a house, a mantle, a vessel, a tabernacle for the soul. What, then, is the soul itself, but thus much for the first particular?'